Hello and welcome. I'm Rachel. I'm Peter. And this is All, All for, for Animals. animals. <laughs> and this week we are going to be discussing some of the a little bit more unique and off the wall uh, animal careers that we humans can go into. You know, since sometimes animals have jobs too. So I guess I'm just going to go ahead and dive right in with my, I picked three different jobs that uh, are good for animal lovers that are just like, hopefully something that maybe people haven't thought of before. So the first one that I have is a park ranger. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was great because it means that you kind of have something similar to like where our mobile grooming is, where it's, you know, it's very different every day. Some days you have to be a mechanic. Some days you're a, a groomer. Some days you're an electrician and all of those other aspects. And I thought a park ranger, you're doing, you're doing a lot as a park ranger. So I have on here that the requirements to become one, they can vary a lot uh, from state to state here in the U.S., uh, but the National Park Service itself tends to require at least an associate's degree, which is two years, and usually they want that degree to be focused in something like zoology, wildlife management, uh, natural resource management, forestry, environmental science, something like that. Um, or sometimes you can also just kind of exchange that for equivalent experience in some states. But the process to become a park ranger tends to take about three to five years. And uh, there's also, instead of just the uh, education, or I'm sorry, in addition to the uh, education and experience requirements, uh, most state parks departments as well as the National Park Service, also have very thorough background investigation requirements, as well as requirements for like medical exams, psychological evaluations, and even what I found is a polygraph exam. Oh, no otherwise way, known, really? Yes, it's otherwise yeah. known as a lie detector for those not in the right. know. Right. And the first thing that I wanted to know was why on earth do you need a polygraph? <laughs> In order to be a park ranger, I just thought that was so weird. But apparently it's because... Uh, well, actually, Peter, do you know why? I I'm, I was waiting for you to tell me, Rachel. I have no idea why you would need to. <laughs> that seems crazy to me. So the reasoning is, most of the time, uh, a park ranger is also a law enforcement agent. So in order to become a law enforcement agent... Um, a polygraph is usually required, and they are finding out, let's see here, I have on here that agencies may polygraph their uh, candidates to verify information that the job applicant has like already provided, so making sure that you're not lying on your resume, and then find out if there's other information um, about like possible past uh, negative, uh, I guess, experiences from past jobs, uh, bad criminal behavior, financial information, drug use, um, and then even things like illegal or deviant sexual behavior. That's crazy. And funny side note, <laughs> um, as soon as I was done researching my uh, information for 
becoming a park ranger, I was listening to my personal favorite podcast, Morbid, and they were playing the episode about David Parker Ray, who was also a park ranger. And it made me think about (laughs) how very important these background checks would be, because back in, if I remember correctly, the 70s and 80s, he was, um, he was running amok. So we want only good park rangers. Yeah, no kidding. Once you are doing the um, law enforcement academy training, you're going to learn wild firefighting. Um, you're going to learn the ins and outs of patrolling your jurisdiction and arrest and restraint techniques, hunting and fishing regulations, firearms and their safety and regulations, Uh, community relations, incident management. So if there's, you know, some kind of problem or even like natural disaster, then um, the park rangers are responsible for jumping in and helping with everything that that happens. So it's it's not an easy job by any. Not at all. Well, and I think that's why you said it takes three to five years. I mean, you're talking to, to know all that and need to learn all that. That takes time. Exactly. So Like I said, they do a lot of different, uh, very important jobs within state and national parks. They're often also referred to as peace officers and are responsible for ensuring that the visitors to whatever location they are responsible for are following any rules, laws, and, and regulations and whatnot because, you know, people do get get crazy sometimes. (laughs) They also are responsible for administering first aid uh, to injured visitors. They investigate crimes and they also participate in and even lead uh, search and rescue operations if someone gets lost or hurt. Well, I mean, when you're dealing with like out in nature and all these, I mean, you're dealing with anyone and everyone. I mean, seriously, there's a lot that could go wrong. There's a lot. Oh, yeah. I mean, and Mother Nature is a cruel bitch. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, in these, you work hard. You would see, you would see a lot. I mean, you show up to work and you find out that so and so has gone missing, and that's a lot of pressure. I mean, that's a lot of pressure to not know, right? If that's what you're getting into, I mean, that's crazy. Yeah, I, I, I give major props to anybody willing to be in any kind of law enforcement or medical like those like really high pressure fields i I don't know how they do it yeah i don't know how they do right you're talking about paralyzed with fear (laughs) right yeah i mean you're talking about as a park ranger you go and you know you stop fill up grab your morning coffee and then all of a sudden you get a call call that a family's gone missing or you know someone's extremely injured or there's a a natural fire that broke out i mean that would just be intense yeah (laughs) so they also are usually responsible for running like the i always call them the ranger stations ever since i was a kid um where they're doing like educational programs they do tours conservation efforts like research and implementing new strategies for protecting the environment around them they also unfortunately have to deal with animal control so you know if people are camping and there's a mountain lion in the area they may be responsible for relocating it so that nobody winds up getting hurt and i mean they also need to protect 
the wildlife from the people, not just. Well, I was going to say you've got wildlife. poachers or people fishing without license or you know improper hunting, and even just yeah, and even just people like driving recklessly could just run over a mountain lion or any number of other kind of critters that we want to protect. Right. So, um, and they also maintain trails, hiking trails, and camping areas and keep them pristine and and safe for us to be able to use and enjoy. And I had a really hard time finding what the like general salary was for park rangers, but I found kind of a range from between like 50 and 80,000 a year, so that's a pretty decent income. I don't think it's enough, though, for that number of jobs, because you are not just any one thing. You are a trail guide, a law enforcement officer. Firefighter. Yeah, you're all these things. Yeah, I feel like you, that should be Jack of up. all <laughs> trades, I tell you what. Well, and I feel like being a park ranger is kind of a job where it's like you, you do it because you love it. You know, it's Isn't that what all animal jobs are? I think so, yeah. I think so. Because <laughs> I don't know if any of us really get paid enough. Yes. And then I actually decided I needed to find a, I guess, a notable person that is in the field besides people who give it a bad name like David Parker Ray. And so I found the first female National Park Ranger, and her name is Claire Marie Hodges. Claire Marie Hodges became the first female National Park Ranger in the summer of 1918. It was uh, around the end of World War I, and most of the able-bodied men were either still deployed or they had just gotten back and were doing their other like military-related jobs that were still being done here in our country, or they were just already going back to other types of um, careers that just kept the, the society going as it was even before the war. And so women started coming in to work as police officers and factory workers. And in California... Yosemite National Park desperately needed rangers. So enter Claire Marie Hodges. She taught at the nearby uh, school called Yosemite Valley. And she just went up to the park superintendent and said, you know what, you're probably going to laugh at me, but I want to be a ranger. And the superintendent basically told her, it's been on my mind for some time to put a woman out there. So she became the very, very first female park ranger and in such an early time i mean it was it was 1918 it's i think it's just amazing for women to forge new paths especially since opportunities tended to lack during those times yeah no kidding so then i just have a few i guess fun facts about the national park service itself Uh, It was created by Congress following President Woodrow Wilson's signing of the Organic Act in 1916. So the National Park Service itself was only created two years before Marie Hodges became the first female park ranger. And I I just think that's so progressive. Very progressive. She expedited. She She pioneered. Yes, she was. She was a fantastic pioneer. And the Park Service was designed to preserve and protect parks 
for the enjoyment of all future generations. And there are now, to date, more than 400 national parks and sites. Now, I, I did learn that the National Park Service oversees not only national parks and state parks, but also some historic sites. So it's not all things like Yellowstone and Yosemite and Grand Tetons and all of those. It's also some of the historic sites, like there's a bunch of memorials, reservoirs, historic structures, national historic landmarks, uh, 25 battlefields or military parks, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, no so kidding. got quite a scope. And Yellowstone was actually the very first national park that was established by Congress in 1872. So it actually predates the creation of the National Park Service. I was about to say, yes. yeah, no kidding. That's crazy. And wow. the single largest national park is the, I'm probably going to butcher this name, it's Wrangell or Wrangell St. Elias National Park and Preserve, and it is over 13 million acres in Alaska. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's that's a lot to oversee. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, yeah, imagine. You gotta think of how many park rangers they need to manage all this, Exactly too. where I was going. You read my mind because really? I was also going to say that in addition to the people who have made an actual paid career out of being a park ranger, there are more than 275,000 volunteers that donate about 6.4 million man-hours every single year wow. to make the national parks run. In addition to the crazy, uh, skilled, and hard-working paid national park rangers. So I just thought that was amazing how much is needed to take care of our national parks so that's my spiel on park rangers for today i'm thinking i might expand this into kind of a series and just sprinkle in like kind of a more deep dive into individual animal careers uh every now and then because i kind of went down well, a rabbit hole hopefully doing <laughs> yeah no kidding well, and hopefully even doing interviews with, um, you know, members of, um, you know, the Park Ranger Society and things like that, um, just to broaden how much actually goes into it and what jobs are out there and available for people that want to do their part, but maybe just don't know how or where to start. I think that that'd be really cool if we could get people in these fields to interview and educate, because I tell you what, they have, exactly. they have information we'll Exactly. I'd love to we'll hear if anybody would like to be on the show that either is a park ranger or has been one before, we would love to hear some of the, I, I mean, I, I can't imagine that you don't have some pretty incredible stories doing that kind of work. <laughs> okay, right. so the next animal career that I had found is going to be a service animal trainer. And now I say animal, even though there was a law passed in 2011 that actually made it so that only dogs can be service animals. And at the time, I actually had a service dog of my own for anxiety attacks, and uh, he helped tremendously by providing deep pressure when I was panicking and interrupting self-harming behaviors and things like that. But I, when I was in college, I did a whole like presentation about that law that would change the definition of a service dog I'm sorry, change the definition of a service animal to only a dog 
because there are people out there like quadriplegics and people on the autism spectrum who are nonverbal and perhaps have um, some mobility issues that have gotten great use from helper monkeys and even miniature horses. So it seems like a disservice, honestly, to a large portion of the disabled community that um, it's now only service dogs. So I'm going to try and refer to them as service dogs, but I might get a little tripped up because I always still think of them as being able to be other types of animals as well. Okay, so I did find too that there are no standard requirements like across the board to become a dog trainer of any kind in the U.S. In fact, um, disabled people who are looking to have a service dog can even train their own. However, even though there aren't necessarily any super strict requirements to be the trainer, there are some pretty rigorous requirements for the service dog themselves. So little disclaimer here, please don't try to pass off your family dog as a service dog so you can bring it into stores with you because it does a disservice to everybody that has an actual legitimate service dog. Yeah, no kidding. Some of the requirements just for, honestly, most any animal-related profession is going to be simple things like knowledge of animal behavior, positive reinforcement training techniques, and a passion for animals. I mean, that's just kind of an obvious one. <laughs> right. And I did learn, too, that there is a school in the U.S. that is widely recognized as one of the best places to learn to train service dogs specifically. And uh, apparently it might even be considered the, the best in the world. It is Bergen College of Animal Studies, and it is in California. So if anybody is looking to become a service dog trainer, that might be a good place to get some good information. I also unfortunately found that there are a lot of quote-unquote schools advertising completely online classes to become a dog trainer of any kind. Unfortunately, anytime you're working with animals, a school advertising entirely online classes is just not going to be able to offer you a proper education. You just, you cannot learn to work with animals without actually having animals to work with. Right, like those online grooming exactly like what yeah like how is that yeah i don't i don't and i think that some of that stuff there's externships involved but like like it's in person you know up close and personal is the best way to learn any any of the following careers exactly i i can't even imagine trying to go into any animal related field like i sat and tried to think while i was doing this research tried to think of any animal job that you could feasibly do without having had hands-on experience and I came up with nothing do you have any ideas maybe like uh in a lab like separating boar semen or something like that you know what I mean for like like uh the ag industry maybe well but then you still have to be hands-on with the specimen it's still it's not the animal itself but you don't learn yeah. how to do, you know, something like manually separating portions of a, a specimen. Yeah, like you that can't. That being... has to be done. I see what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, that's what right. I mean. Is it's not necessarily hands on is. with the animal itself for absolutely everything, but it has to be hands on with whatever it is that you're working on. So if you're working on lab right. samples, 
if you're looking with the animals themselves, that kind of thing. It's just, I don't, I don't see it being able to be done hands off like that. I don't, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I don't think that someone, some listener prove us wrong and (laughs) write us a story or, or tell us about your career that is not animal related or that is hands-on and not animal related wait i think you mean that you learned hands-off but is animal related there you go (laughs) that's how we say things um (laughs) maybe like being like a nutritionist like learning about animal nutrition could be something that you could get a degree or a certificate online that would be really i actually did some research about that And in order to be a legit animal nutritionist, you have to have prior animal medical training because you need to understand the way that whatever type of animal it is that you are studying their nutrition, you need to know how their body reacts to whatever different nutrition, or I'm sorry, nutrients and everything that they are going to receive. So you may be able to get the certification for the nutritionist specifically. But the prior knowledge you couldn't have Yes. The prerequisite, you still have to have medical training. And again, you can't do anything medically related without being hands-on. Anyone can uh, shoot us an email and describe about um, something you do with animals that's hands-off. There might be something. I mean, that's the thing about this industry. There's just so so many avenues and areas. We very well could be wrong. And there is is a way you can can be a part of the industry and not be hands-on. So yeah, someone prove us wrong. Please and thank you. (laughs) Yeah. So I also have on here too, uh, there's sometimes some confusion about what exactly counts as a service animal. So the definition of a service animal, according to the ADA, which is the Americans with Disabilities Act, and they are the organization responsible for overseeing the various rules and restrictions surrounding service animals and their handlers. So the definition is a service dog is a dog that is individually trained to work or perform a specific task for a person with a disability and they must be permitted into all areas where members of the public are allowed to go and there are rules like exceptions to that rule and that is mostly if it is obvious that the handler of the service animal doesn't have control over the dog and or the dog is causing physical damage or threats to people or property or is doing things like pooping in a store or something because an actually properly trained service dog that's not going to happen yeah i was gonna say that's got to be real scarce yeah well unfortunately with with this comes a lot of people passing off family pets as service dogs and those dogs do quite often cause those types of problems so that is when that's when an establishment is allowed to um, ask people to leave sure or at least make their animal leave. right because then it is obvious that they have not been properly trained and are not a legitimate service service dog. Having been a service dog handler for many years, it was extremely frustrated how many people did not understand the difference between service dogs, emotional support animals, and therapy dogs because they are all very, very different things and they all have very different rights in public. If you know, feel free to brief real quick about the difference between the three if you feel confident to do so. Oh, absolutely. So So a service animal is what I just uh, read off from the ADA, specifically trained to perform tasks for 
a person with a disability. And a task is something like a medication retrieval and reminder, uh, self-harm behavior interruption, seizure detection, low blood sugar detection, mobility assistance. It is not something like, oh, well, he makes me feel more calm when I'm scared. That's not a task. And while that is helpful for you, it does not give your dog public access rights. Right. So it has to be something very, very specific. So somebody who is wheelchair bound, their service dog might be for mobility so that it can help them transfer themselves independently from their wheelchair to their couch or their bed. They're recognized medical equipment. Exactly. Yes, they are. They are treated as medical equipment. Uh, That's not to say that a service dog lives a miserable life. Mm -hmm. They are a very, very beloved pet to their handler as well, but under legal definition. I mean, at this point, they're a necessity. Yes, exactly. They are under legal definition protected as medical equipment so that any person with a disability requiring that service dog cannot be turned away for needing their medical equipment. So it would be the same as telling a person on oxygen that they have to leave their oxygen tank outside. So that's a service dog. An emotional support animal is, it's kind of a murky area right now where um, essentially you can get a recommendation from a therapist, a doctor, this patient would benefit from having an animal in their life and take that to a landlord that would otherwise say you're not allowed to have a pet or whatever because your mental or physical well well not really physical because that would be more like task training but your mental well-being would be negatively impacted Impacted. by not having your animal um and then they have to allow you to have that animal but it is not the same as allowing that animal to go with you in public emotional support animals can be i if if i remember correctly any species it doesn't matter um, because of the fact that they are not task trained so they don't have to be able to retrieve your medication for you turn on lights for you or help you out of your wheelchair those types of things they are simply essentially an extra hit of dopamine for you and help you to just feel psychologically better. But that does not mean that they are ever allowed in public spaces where animals are, I'm sorry, where pets are not allowed. They are not medical equipment. They should be properly trained. However, there aren't exactly stringent requirements for that. I mean, I feel that any pet should be properly trained, but especially if you've got a label on it that forces uh, landlords to work with you and your pet, do the right thing and make sure that that pet is not going to become a liability to the people around you. That's just kind of my little soapbox right there. But um, yes, they can also be required to have access to like a plain seat instead of having to go in the uh, cargo hold if you are on going on a trip because they can be comforting and helpful for people who have a severe fear of flying, which, um, I mean, I definitely suffer from a massive fear of flying. So to be honest, that kind of sounds good. And I feel like every plane should just kind of have a, a little support animal that just kind of hops from person to person and gives you loves to make everybody a little bit less on edge. <laughs> okay. Then the last type is a therapy dog or therapy animal because they can also be multiple different species as well and they are the animals who 
people who own a pet or even just have an organization that likes to spread some extra joy and happiness, they will take their animal into places like hospitals and nursing homes, special needs schools, and uh, even like therapy offices, courtrooms, any places like that specifically to bring a little bit of joy and comfort to other people who are maybe going through something difficult right now. And again, they are not allowed in all public spaces. They are not task trained, so they are not the same as a service dog. And they do actually require uh, that any therapy animal be properly trained to be in a public space as well because of the fact that if they are traveling through nursing homes, medical facilities, there's going to be some off-the-wall noises. There's going to be scary things happening. They have to be comfortable being pet by a bunch of different people, everything like that. Because obviously a therapy dog cannot go and, you know, snap at a hospital patient. Sure. That would be very bad. Or young kids, (laughs) you know, things like that. So we actually had a dog that my mom had trained and got certified as a therapy animal. And a lot of what it is, is these classes that you take. Basically, um, a lot of what it's geared towards is assessment. Seeing if your animal is properly social, um, if they've got a really good, reliable temperament, if they're really good at obedience, if they're not super high strung, um, especially yeah. you know you're going into nursing homes. A lot of the times you, you find these animals that are just have this cool, collected, chill kind of aura to them. So I would almost say that a therapy animal in some way is more personality based around the animal itself and, and how they respond and react to certain environments and people. Um, that's kind of what goes into the creation of a therapy animal. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, so I have listed on here as well the responsibilities coming back to the trainer themselves instead of the different definitions for the animals. And obviously the very first and in my opinion most important aspect is going to be absolutely going bonker balls insane with socialization of the puppy from the very beginning of their life. Um, And that's going to ensure that the grown service dog will be comfortable and calm in any situation. And they'll be able to be fully obedient and potty trained um, so that the disabled owner is always going to be able to maintain control and rely upon their dog to behave as needed and also ensure just basic like public sanitation and safety. The next most important part is obviously the task training of the dog to perform whichever specific task they are going to be assisting their owner with in their daily life. And that task will vary from person to person, which is why when you are choosing an organization or a company or person to work with in training your service dog, they have to get to know you very, very well uh, to understand exactly what areas in your life you could use the most assistance in that they would be able to train a dog to help you with. So for instance, my service dog, he would sit on my chest and provide deep pressure, which helped prevent me from panicking quite as much, or at least it would help to reduce the amount of time. And then I also would like pound on my my chest really, really hard until I had bruises and then I would have trouble breathing the next day. So his job was to basically come up and the first thing he would do was like scratch at my legs, try to distract me, keep me from starting to hit my chest in the first place. And then after 
that if I continued, then he would sit on my chest. He would put his head, his back on top of me so that I physically wouldn't be able to reach my chest. And I obviously would never want to hurt him. So that was a really good deterrent to keep me from trying to do those harmful behaviors that were distracting in moments when I was feeling a lot of panic. Um, and then the last responsibility is people often forget that when you are an animal trainer, what you are also doing is training the humans interacting with that animal. How? to interact with that animal on a day-to-day -day basis and how to communicate with their their pup in whatever way they need to to navigate the world around them together as a an effective service dog and handler team. And service dog trainers can expect a salary range from anywhere in the low 20 uh, thousands per year to over 50,000 depending upon I guess the specialization of the types of service dogs that you provide and the level of training that you have uh, invested in your education. And that's my spiel for service dogs. Uh, did you have any questions about service dogs or their trainers? No, but I will say I learned a lot. <laughs> I mean, seriously. <laughs> Good. Um, that's something I would say like that um, medicine and nutrition are really where I lack in education. Um, and that was, yeah, no, that was really, really insightful. And I like your breakdown of the difference between a service dog, an ESA, emotional support animal, and a therapy animal, because I think it does get confusing. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the times you these terms overlap, but the reality is they shouldn't because they're their own terms for their own reason. These dogs are doing very different things with very different upbringings exactly. and um, training to kind of sculpt them into what they need to be doing. Yeah, no, it's it, that was really, really great, Rachel. Um, so the last career that I have selected is a taxidermist. And I'm sorry, I just had to. I just thought it was too funny. Now, do you know anything about uh, taxidermy in general? Or are you coming in as a newbie? No, yeah, I'm, I'm coming as a complete and utter noob. I know, I don't own a piece of taxidermy. <laughs> I know nothing of it. It's It was a good one to think of. I'll give you that. Um, that's out there. <laughs> That was kind of the point we were going toward. So, right, absolutely. A lot of people think of taxidermy as creepy, and I will admit that I am usually in that camp as well, that it can be very oh, dis disarming if you walk into a place that has taxidermy, uh, especially if it's some of the, let's say, lesser quality. <laughs> um, then it can just, it can turn to really creepy really fast but I think that the general concept is actually pretty cool especially because it originated even as far at back as like Charles Darwin and further so it was very helpful even in just learning about the the things that naturally occur in the world around us and preserving them for future people to be able to understand and learn from them as well and there are a lot of taxidermy specimens in things like museums and in veterinary schools and all kinds of those types of applications that are very educational and helpful for preserving education, history, all kinds of stuff. So it has some, some pretty useful applications, at least I think so. And there are actually, similar to the uh, dog training, there are no specific overseeing bodies that are responsible for having any kind of standards for taxidermy. And I thought that was 
really crazy. I, I really expected there to be a lot more regulation, but there really isn't. Uh, mostly, all you need is a permit from your specific state. Now, that does change if you want to work with migratory animals, specifically migratory birds. Then you have to have federal permits, and they can be a little bit more difficult to secure. But if you are just working with uh, native species and everything, you can go to town with just a like I looked up in Oregon, this permit is like $6. So there's not exactly a very high cost of entry if you consider just Are there the like permit. schools or any place of like formal education? There are. Interesting. There are. They don't all have the best reputation. Okay. I found some forums where people were discussing how they learned their craft. And there were some specific schools, I'm not going to name names, but they had reputation surrounding them. Um, a lot of people are mostly self-taught or they will work with another already established and talented taxidermist with they'll do kind of an apprenticeship mentorship right absolutely yes so i just thought that was really cool because you know as groomers we have a similar thing where there is no strict governing body telling us exactly what we need to be able to do and know to become a groomer and there's so many different ways that people can become groomers they can learn the craft it's just very interesting and a lot of people honestly get their start collecting roadkill and preserving that at first Interesting. so i guess i'm gonna call that a silver lining that at least if an animal had to get hit by a car hopefully it furthered someone's education sure. i'm gonna go with that sure <laughs> well it's almost i feel like in a way it's almost like delivering an amount of respect for the animal like what's that movie with the guy with the dinner for schmucks have you ever seen that? Oh, no, and I haven't seen that. So he, what he does is he, I mean, it's, it's a movie shot in a bigger city. And is it Steve Carell? Yes. And he, like, part of his character trait in the role he plays, he was like a taxidermist. He would find, like, dead mice around the city and create, like, these weird, like, utopia taxidermy societies. And I just thought that was interesting. <laughs> um, that it's almost like putting putting a new life back into the animal or just not letting it lay on the side of the road and rot. Exactly. And actually, that is the kind of general consensus amongst taxidermists is it's a way to honor the animal's life as well as... As, especially since most uh, taxidermists' business comes from independent hunters and fishermen, then they are also kind of just preserving the memory of the experience of bringing that animal home. So I think that's kind of a really nice way to look at it. And fun fact, you mentioned taxidermied mice. When I was a really young child, one of my relatives gave me a taxidermied mouse as a present, and she became my best friend. I didn't even know she was taxidermied. I thought she was just a regular little stuffed animal. Yeah. She was teeny tiny, and I called her Mousy, and I loved her. I kept her in an old, cleaned out peanut butter jar because I had a cat at the time, and she was obsessed with trying to steal my little mousy and one day that was how she met her demise oh, yeah. the mousy not the cat <laughs> right right so i apparently had some experience i will i at wonder least owning if... a taxidermied animal before <laughs> did you figure that out during your research like if it's like you start with like the simpler animals like the small like mice and then work your way up to like deer and fish like how the hell do you taxidermy a fish um actually it's funny that process. you asked that because apparently According to pretty much any taxidermist that you asked, fish are the toughest animals to work with. 
And oh, that's really? mostly because their skin loses all of its color and like the dynamic, just like appearance as soon as it dries out. Hmm. So that means that the entirety of the fish's outward appearance has to be completely recreated using paint. Oh, wow. Interesting. So, exactly. So that brings me back to, to the response, or I'm sorry, the requirements, I guess, for a taxidermist, where it's a mix of, of many jobs similar to grooming and similar to being even a park ranger, where one day you're doing mostly sculpting work. The next you might be doing woodworking because they do often come mounted on a beautiful wooden plaque. And sometimes they have to be secured properly, especially if you have a large animal or even an animal in a standing pose. Then you have to have like a full-on armature built around that animal to keep it from falling over. Uh, You have to be very good at sewing obviously painting like we just discussed with the fish and um, tanning which is the process of preserving the and and drying the skin and fur of the animal and um, fun fact as well taxidermists do not like the term stuffed for their animals they prefer mounted now and they find that a little bit more respectful as well as more accurate because when taxidermy first came around it was not exactly very nice looking <laughs> and it wasn't as as good of a preservation method as it can be today meaning that things like entrails were scooped out of animals and then they were re- replaced with things like sawdust or like cotton stuffing mm-hmm. but things like eyeballs and tongues were still left in the bodies so they would eventually rot and that's gross that's, yeah that's and they'd gross. be infested with <laughs> bugs and they became problematic so those specimens sure. couldn't be preserved for very long um nowadays since it has kind of had a a reprisal in popularity since the 70s nowadays it's a bit more of a respected art form and instead of just kind of scooping out the organs and whatnot and tanning the hide and and stuffing it they would completely remove things like obviously organs muscles and all of that stuff but then also eyeballs tongues anything that would potentially be able to decay and then now they are, for lack of a better term, actually mounted to a mannequin or mold, usually made from some kind of breathable foam. And that apparently preserves it better. Yeah. And that mounting process where they are basically sewn onto a special foam mold is why they usually prefer the term mounted now instead of stuffed because it's more accurate and it uh, better portrays how it's done now with the better preservation value. And things like eyes are usually completely removed and then replaced with painted glass oh i was gonna ask if it were like marbles or like what they did with the eyes and the tongue tongues i believe they are just completely recreated either that or i found some reference to filling any tissue that couldn't be removed with formaldehyde to preserve it that way interesting okay um i found as well some information about the i guess pricing So what you can expect to pay for a taxidermied animal. So I found out as well that taxidermists just in the U.S. alone earn about $600 billion a year. 
And I just thought that was insane. And most of that... Is that the whole industry? Yes. All taxidermists okay. in the U.S. Wow. Um, some of that work is for museums and... Um, like schools, education programs, but the vast majority of it is actually just for hunters and fishermen and people wanting to display their their trophy kills. Sure. So well, and there's this new there's this new trend where people taxidermy their their lost pets, which I don't think I like that. I don't know. Yes, in fact, that, that would a lot of taxidermists don't like that either. Okay. And I was having trouble finding out why exactly. But I'm just going to sit here and insert my opinion. I'm thinking it might be because if you're kind of similar to like a tattoo artist working on a portrait, it's so difficult to get every single detail correct. And someone who loved that animal or the person who's in the portrait that they're having tattooed or whatever, they're going to notice every single flaw. Yeah. And it might be very difficult to get a completely accurate likeness. And I, I feel like maybe the sentimentality of it makes it a bit too high pressure. No, yeah, I was going to say, I think you're able, right. That that yeah. makes sense. It's just be just too much pressure. Absolutely. I think that's what it is. But any taxidermist that might be listening, please feel free to, to weigh in. I'd really like to know. Yeah, that's interesting. So, Peter, you brought up taxidermying pets. Would you ever in a million years... No. Absolutely not. Absolutely, that's so animals. strange. And I don't want to remember my animal like that either. Like, what they're just what you know, one of my cats passes, and I get them stuffed. Like that, just be odd. Just having them sitting on my desk, or yeah, I think it's sad because, like you just said, I don't want to remember them in their final days. I want to remember them when they were, you know, bouncing around and happy to see me, and and able to be you know right living. and well feeling <laughs> feeling them after it's like you're looking at your dead pet yeah there are people that freeze dry their animals too and i don't know much about that um actually that can be part of the taxidermying process is it yeah i figured they would go hand in hand a little but yeah i just think in my i mean you know to each their own of course but just for me taxidermy my animals i would rather um bury or cremate and just remember them through the memories I've had and the pictures I've taken and the videos I've rec recorded and things like that. So Yeah, same yeah. here. I want to yeah. see all of the cute things that my animals do, not just not just their their body. Let's debate a little bit. Please write us an email on if you would or would not get your animal taxidermied <laughs> and why or why not. Um, I'm sure there's someone out there that has a very valid reason of why they would, and I would um, invite you to share. I'm curious. I'm interested. I want to hear about it. Same. So I do have an interesting fact, actually. Just so that everyone knows, it is actually completely illegal to taxidermy a human. I figured that might be one of our most <laughs> common questions. Yes. No. And I knew that. I think I knew that from some some Johnny Knoxville shit. He did a bit where they tried to oh geez go to a taxidermist with his with some paid actor, an old lady posing as his grandma, and asked how much to get her taxidermy. <laughs> it was so yeah. I knew the answer to that fun fact already, and I think with good reason it should be illegal to taxidermy people. That's just yeah fucking bizarre. <laughs> so yeah, I mean the process of taxidermying on a person would essentially equate to mutilating a corpse. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it can take over a year for your mount to be finished. And that's not because the actual process takes that long, but because there's extremely high demand 
for taxidermists and um, actually not very many of good quality ones that people can rely upon to bring them back a good likeness of their <laughs> their hunt. And they also ha tend to have quite a backlog and their work also tends to be somewhat seasonal due to the different hunting seasons and the laws surrounding that. So yeah, that's what I have on taxidermy. Did you have any questions about them? No, but Again, I learned quite a bit. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I think that um, the the pivotal point of creating this episode is kind of to discuss within any animal career, or really any career for that matter, there's so much that goes on behind the scenes. Absolutely. Um, you know, it makes you really think about, you know, like if you're looking at a mounted deer head, what really went into that to create, you know, the, pro the final product that we're looking at? Much Absolutely, like and like... Did you ever watch the show Dirty Jobs with uh, Mike Rowe? I sure did. Everybody loves that show. <laughs> of course. I love it. It's like seriously one of my favorites. And he did an episode where he was, um, I can't remember if it was an actual taxidermist or if he was just learning to do like the um, tanning of the skins, but it was such a nasty process and there's so much like scary chemicals going into the process of tanning the the skins from the animals i mean major props to anybody that is co that comfortable working with those scary chemicals the nasty smells and <laughs> things that you have to do to these creatures all for the benefit of preserving the people's memories of them Right. Absolutely. And with that being said, anyone that wants to share kind of the behind the scenes of what they do in the industry every single day, you know, write us an email or DM us on um, Instagram or... Absolutely. And if you have an off-the-wall animal career that you think is a good one we probably haven't heard of before, let me know because I kind of want to make this a series. I want to... I want to do more deep dives into some of the lesser known animal careers because everybody kind of knows about being a vet, a groomer, or a trainer. I want to go a little deeper than that. Absolutely. Absolutely. The industry is so much more deeper than just a couple career paths you could take. So, Absolutely. Alrighty, we'll see you next week. 